Good evening, everyone. And my name is David Elwood, and I want to welcome you to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Tonight's promises to be a quite extraordinary evening, for we have the, uh, one of the great, great minds, thinkers, innovators, provocateurs um, in this nation. Uh, and uh, so I want to briefly. David, of course, and, <laughs> and you have we have Eric Schmidt as well. Uh, uh, neither of these gentlemen need much of any introduction, so I'm going to keep it very short. Uh, time is short, I know, and so forth. But um, Eric Schmidt, as all of you know, or many of you know, was the CEO of, uh, of Google from 20, 2001 to 2011. He's the executive chairman now. Throughout his career, though, which started with many other things, including Xerox at Park, um, his novel and so on, he has been a source of inspiration and leadership, boldness, um, and a man who, who constantly pushed at the margins to get people to think about different ideas. The striking thing is how broad and diverse his set of interests is. This book that, uh, uh, th that has, he's gone around, Innovation and Leadership in the New Digital Age, is what this is about. The book is called, itself is called The New Digital Age, which he wrote with Jared Cohen. Um, shows the breadth of thinking. It's much, so much more than the technology or the straightforward software uses we're used to doing. But how do you think about leadership? How do you think about nations? How do you think about the future of international affairs in a world that looks so very different and is changing so very quickly? So it is uh, extraordinarily great that he has a chance to come and speak to this group of people and give his insights. David Gergen. Uh, is uh, someone who is uh, equally uh, young, but usually not quite as provocative. Uh, he's clever uh, in his provocation. Um, but he, too, is a man of uh, great interest and spirit and, and focus. He's worked for four different presidents, uh, both Republicans and Democrats. Um, he's uh, the person on CNN. I always say that I always wait to hear what David says, because he's the only one I trust. Uh, the others are all predictable. Um, Perhaps his most important quality is he believes in more than anything the potential and the capacity of, the, of all of you, the next generation of leaders, to provide the public leadership that, quite honestly, our generations have not. And so with that, let me turn it over to David Gergen. And thank you very much, both of you, for being here. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> thank you, Eric. The Ralph Waldo Emerson often greeted his friends here in New England with the question, what have you learned since we last met? You were here a year ago. You're, you live in an extraordinarily rapidly changing world. What big things have you been learning? Well, thank you guys for having me back. Um, I had a great time when we were on the book tour. And the thing I've learned the most, I think, in the last year is how important it is to mine entrepreneurs. Uh, I have been sort of trying to understand how we're going to fix the various problems. And I think if we just mined more entrepreneurs, instead of Bitcoins, by the way, more entrepreneurs, um, we would be better off. Because most of the problems that we talk about, and I suspect that you all spend an awful lot of time out, would be solved with more jobs, more economic growth, and more innovation. All right. Uh, <laughs> I want to come back to the jobs point because I know that the question of jobs and inequality has been very much right. on your mind as you think about your next book. Um, and I should say that my next book has already been written. It's on management. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, it comes out on September 23rd, and I know it's going to be a bestseller. Do you know why? No. Because it has the word Google in it. <laughs> right? It has nothing to do with the content or anything like well, that. So what is the title? Uh, how Google Does It. How, how Google Does It? I mean, come on. The yeah. publisher said, look, pick this one. You don't think I'm telling you the truth? Yeah. Of course. Do you want to give us the first, uh, the, the, the main, the no, main it's argument? It's, it's basically the, ar the core argument is that the industrial management systems that right. most of us grew up with are not really very well suited to the workforce of the digital age. That the traditional command and control structures, the way people interview, the way people lead, right. the way people do strategy are from a time, an earlier time. But because incumbencies are so strong, and change is so difficult, we assume that this is the right way to manage people. So mm -hmm. how about decisions from the bottom up? How about letting smart people make their own decisions? How about having unregulated spaces you know, to let people experiment? And that's a part of this innovation message that I've decided to spend my time on. But innovation is the core of most of the solutions to people's problems. And we might as well focus ourselves. It's also, by the way, the only solution for America's problems. And I can go through why. But basically, there's no other hope. And I wish our political leaders, including you all, would work on this, because it is the solution. How do you teach people to be innovative? Um, well, it's interesting to understand that um, if you look at innovation today, our first, the first question is, are we, are we teaching our, our young people to be innovators? And I would say that essentially there's no programs that are doing it. There people are trying to. But if you look at the math around jobs, and we have the two of the experts here in the front row uh, who actually wrote the book that in influenced my thinking a lot on this, which is the the second machine age. Um, the little, pl little plug for our friends. Yeah. The, 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 the basic data says that um, jobs are created by fast growing small companies, not by large companies and not by small companies. So if you control for age of the company, right? So basically relatively recently founded companies in any industry tend to drive job growth. If you don't want to use a tech example, let's use the energy example, right? Primary source of job growth in the majority of the Western states has been the fracking revolution, right? There are huge job shortages related to all of that. And again, the firms that founded that were all new, right? All those guys are getting consolidated. It's a normal industrial structure. Uh, Klaus Schwab was here sitting yeah. in that chair uh, just three or four weeks ago. And he made the argument that we should no longer uh, uh, judge the future of countries by their GDP growth, but rather by their in level of innovation. And he said on that scale, America remains number one and should be number one for a while to go. Are we more innovative by nature? Is it within a certain, within our, is it something about the, is it part of our DNA? Or the it may be simply correlated with youth. Um, if you have a thousand year old country, you have an awful lot more regulations than if you have a 200 year old country. Um, I was in Israel, and I was struck by the culture of innovation. I Israel is the number two generator of unicorns, which are billion-dollar billion dollar private companies that, m that may or may not be participating in a bubble, if you get my drift. Uh, it's sort of San Francisco's number one, and Tel Aviv's number two. And what is it about Israel? Well, in addition to being incredibly smart, it's a very young country. Right? So think about it. Good educational system yeah, and so yeah. forth. Plus, and, plus had the number two. Yeah. And what's interesting yep. is that if you imagine a, a, a graph of regulation, you start off with no regulation at all. And you clearly, by the way, need some regulations. You need police. You need laws about personal behavior and harm and, and, and all of that. 
right? So there's some curve. So as we sort of invent our society from caveman days, you know, we eventually have all of these rules. Well, the question from your perspective is, it, is it possible to over-regulate a society, right? I would argue it is. And the way to understand the answer to that question is ask entrepreneurs in the healthcare industry, right? In many of the sciences, are they able to make a company to do something different? And they'll say that the, the goal of the regulation may have been correct way back when, but by the time the regulator wrote all the rules down, of which there are 500, it constrained the solution in such a way that a new innovative solution was not possible. Hmm. Right. And there are plenty of examples of this. In fact, Google's position on regulation is we understand regulation is needed, but regulate the outcome you want. Don't regulate the mechanism. Right. Because if you start regulating the mechanism, you put in the body of law the way you do it. The classic example here is the V-chip. Everyone knows about the V-chip in their television, right? Everyone uses the V-chip that's in your television every day. The V-chip protects children from all of that inappropriate content that's on television today. Do you think I'm in the same country as you are? Did you realize that every one of your televisions has a V-chip? That that I just told you is the marketing and the law that was passed? Hmm. Good news is the V-chip doesn't cost very much because it's a piece of semiconductor. We normally associate uh, startups and innovators with business schools. I'm increasingly told the startups of the future are gonna be, come from designers and engineers and that they'll hire the MBAs. Um, <laughs> this is a trick question. <laughs> Even I can figure this out. Uh -huh. um, look, let's talk about the characteristics of, of innovators and let's talk about entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs see a vision that the average person doesn't see, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to achieve that vision. That's the characteristic of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. they, are, they do not suffer fools easily. They're very self-confident. Others would use other words, right? They're often very young and very self-confident. We need to celebrate these people. We need to find them. And if you're not like that, you need to befriend them because you're going to work for them, okay? <laughs> So be nice to them, right? And one of the characteristics of entrepreneurs that, that is most interesting is uh, that there's a, in social sciences, this notion of grit. They're trying to measure grit, which can be understood as persistence. And an awful lot of people fall into the equivalent of a pile of tears when they, they come across challenges, right? But there's something about entrepreneurs that the, the best ones have persistence in the face of enormous challenge. So here's the test. You funded the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur does a pretty good job. And then the incumbent announces the same product, having stole, for purposes of argument, the intellectual property of the little company. What does the entrepreneur do? Well, the successful entrepreneur doubles down, fights harder, leads harder, challenges harder, and eventually wins. The unsuccessful entrepreneur gets scared, gets tentative, loses confidence, falls apart. That's the difference between a billion dollars and zero. Hmm. Um, in this book that you cited, The Second Machine Age, it, it's basically an optimistic book, but it does warn there's a dark side of, of, of this new age, and that is that we, if, unless we play our cards right, we could have growing joblessness and, and growing inequality, it could actually increase quite rapidly and dangerously. How worried are you about that? I, I'm personally very worried about it, and I think a lot of these issues are far beyond what Google can even have an opinion on, yeah. and certainly I, and I'm not an expert in. 
And it goes something like this. We're in a situation where we have a surplus of labor. We actually have people whose skills are not needed because they're being replaced by automation. Not good. Now, the traditional solution to that is to produce in the educational system people whose jobs are, I'll use the word complementary, that is, they're, they're complementary to the technology and the platforms at hand. So we don't educate the kinds of people we needed 50 years ago, we educate the kind of people we need in the next few years. I would say to you that we need more people who are analytically trained. And I'm gonna use the word analytics in a broad sense of analytics. So I'm gonna include uh, certain kinds of policy analysis, economics, the law, things which have a precise sort of legal analytical meaning. And the revolution that's needed in, in the educational system goes something like, we need to produce people who are more, have more of an understanding of the analytic nature of the world ahead of them. Even if they're not gonna be entrepreneurs, they're gonna work for people, and the first thing that the entrepreneur is gonna say is measure this. So they need to, to be able to measure things, and I mean that in a, in a more deep way than you might have, might have, they have to think about it that way, they have to think through the process. They have to understand that, that there's doubt, there are false claims, you have to go through the process of analysis and you have to come up with a conclusion and you have to be able to defend it. You guys take this for granted, but the average person is not being educated that way. And certainly if you look at the cohort of millions of people in college, we need to fix that. The second thing is I think we need to have essentially, um, uh, for every major university anyway, some form of entrepreneurship program. And since you can't really teach entrepreneurship, you might as well just have a fun pizza party with all the entrepreneurs that you have and have them teach each other. So I'm giving you the simplest possible way to have a program here at Harvard. Take all the pizza current entrepreneurs. For entre entrepreneurs. Yes, right. Pizza party for entrepreneurs at Harvard talking to each other. Right? It costs the university exactly the prices of pizza. You already have the buildings. <laughs> right? Doesn't require tenured faculty, large grants, new buildings, you know, the David Gergen Memorial this, you're still alive. The Eric Schmidt pizza <laughs> party. <laughs> the pizza party. And, and why do they show up? Because they're young and they eat pizza. Okay, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Right, so that kind of, and so you sit there and you say, well, why is he wasting all his time talking about pizza parties? Because that's how people learn, right? And, in, and because these systems are complicated, because there's a lot of interdependencies, they need to be together. And this is, by the way, why distance learning and the sort of remote working never worked, right? Yeah. People actually are moving to cities because they want to be near the other people, because they want to be near the action, because they don't want to miss out, you know, it's fear of missing out, all that kind of stuff, and they want to be part of it, right? Because that's why you have the renaissance of cities in the-, in the Yeah, in the that's, that's very interesting. I, I went with a group of uh, Kennedy School students to New York this uh, January for about 10 days. And it was striking to hear from the Bloomberg administration, Bob Steele, the deputy mayor for economic development, that their whole theory of economic development had flipped. That they used to, their old theory was provide a lot of incentives for businesses to move to New York and, and treat them well through the tax system, make sure they don't have, they're not overregulated, and they will bring people and jobs. And now the new theory is make the quality of life really attractive for creative people. Have the creative people come, have them get together at pizza and parties, and they will create the and, jobs. And can I use the word, use of the word creative? I like to use the word creative and analytic. That's interesting. Everyone thinks of them as a great artist. Yep. That's fine, have a great time. I need, you need to be creative and you need to be analytical. Right. You need to be able to say what you're gonna do, you need to put a plan together, and you need to deliver on it. Key characteristic of being And that, is that what you tried to do in, in creating your, in your New York offices, your Google yeah. offices there? And in fact, uh, Bob set up, um, working for the mayor, this uh, collaboration between Cornell and Technion right. in Roosevelt right. Island, of which I'm one of the, the board oh, members. I didn't know that. And uh, I, this is a, a real example of trying to take 
at the master's level on entrepreneurship program. I also teach entrepreneurship at Stanford. I should fully disclose to the Harvard people. Do you give a lot of pizza parties? Uh, <laughs> we do the equivalent yeah. at Stanford. It's you know sort of more more. Um, I'll describe the food later. Uh, <laughs> more sprouts. And uh, so in any case, uh, the, 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 the sort of sense of being in the middle of something great is hugely motivator, motivating to people who want to start new things. Oh. Yeah, and, and just to finish my little diatribe on why entrepreneurs. Now let's go through how entrepreneurs can solve every problem in America. So the first problem we have is economic growth. Okay. Well, I already told you that the way to do that is to build new companies. The fastest way to build a new company is to invent some new product that everybody wants and hire lots of people. Right? That's called innovation. So you want to solve the climate change problem? Figure out a way to make solar and wind significantly less than the price of coal. Boom. All the utilities who are in fact run by accountants who can actually run the numbers would buy it. Boom. We're done. You need to fix the grid and do a few other things like that. You get the idea. You want to fix healthcare, right? come up with new diagnostics that materially allow you to do a diag diagnosis of, of high-cost diseases in the medical sense of high cost earlier in the earlier stage, right? You drive the whole cost of the system earlier. I can go on and on and on yeah. and on. But how much do you worry, though, that you, 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 Google's bought a robot company. How much do you worry that robots will become doing more and more of the jobs that you want hired people to do? I worry about the, the, the question that you, that you were getting at, which is sort of the jobs question, as I, I've been wandering around talking to all these economists. I am an amateur economist, and I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I know how to ask them questions. And you ask them the following question. Tell me how it plays out, okay? Ultimately, you've got all of these people, you've got all these programs, and you've got all these processes that are automating out. Do you end up with more jobs or fewer jobs? Mm -hmm. And what kinds of jobs? Right. The sum of the, the economist's view is that you will end up with enough jobs, but you end up with this bifurcated jobs. And the, the simplest example is, let's use um, Uber. Um, Uber, the Uber programmers have made a great deal of money, they're very impressive and so forth, but the Uber drivers, on average, are being paid less than they were in their previous full-time job. That's why they're Uber drivers. By the way, you should be very nice to them as a result, because it'd be easy to be, be one of us right, if we fell on misfortune. So what I'm trying to say is, that the economics and the sum of the revenue, it's not as obvious that the sum of the revenue is positive. Right? Right. And, and ultimately for someone that's less revenue, that means less going to college, less lifestyle, right. less television. It whatever. also means more inequality. And, and, and it ultimately leads to inequality. The inequality stuff, um, is, I'm not an expert on, but there are, there's a long list of proposals for how to address rising inequalities. There's in fact a book that's come out by this fellow Piketty, who's a French economist, <laughs> basically who says, that inequality is, has been structurally true for hundreds of years, and only massive intervention by the state, of course, French economist, uh, uh, massive intervention by the state is needed to redistribute that. He's got lots and lots of math. Do you believe that? Uh, I can't evaluate his claims. I've found economists who disagree with him, and I can't decide which economists. No, you know, it's, one, it's one hand economists. Did you look the at other what, what's happened to France? Uh, well, uh, France may have other issues, uh, but. You can also screw up your country if you have a political system that doesn't do anything. Um, so, for example, in America, here we have a situation where the government can't actually pass any laws at all, right, because of the, nat the polarization. Uh, and by the way, we, in we elected all of these people. So don't look around the room and say, oh, someone else voted for them. We voted for them, and I mean all of them, right? 
So we've got, to could, we've got to address the fact that we need strong leadership in each of these countries that's promoting innovation, job growth, you know, better health for everybody. A majority of the people who go to the Kennedy School wind up in public service. How should they be prepared for this new technological digital age, the second machine age? What would you recommend well, to the school? So my first message would be, I'd like you all to figure out from a public policy perspective how to solve the jobs problem, because if you can solve the jobs problem, you can solve almost everything else. What I would argue pretty strongly is that a high unemployment rate is linked to almost, other, almost every other ill in a society. High joblessness, especially high long-term joblessness, leads to all sorts of medical problems and criminal problems and so forth and so on. So imagine a society where you had 100% of the people who were employed and happy. You'd still have problems, right? But you would not, but a lot of the problems occur because of the marginalization of society. Right. So one thing is to fix that. Uh, I'll ask you a question because you actually work here. Um, I don't understand how foreign policy is going to react to the multipolar world we're in now. It seems to me that foreign policy is largely organized around the legacy of the, 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 the um, Soviet Union versus the, the US right. and the sort of the traditional Kissingerian, you know, us versus them kind of right. politics and very shrewd and clever negotiations. Um, I would observe that uh, in a connected world, politics should work the way my world works, is, which is by power laws. And for those of you who don't know what power laws are, they essentially indicate that, that there are small numbers of places that have very high connectivity and a large number of places that have low connectivity, right? That's an easy way of understanding a power law. And so power laws are present everywhere in a connected world. Um, so for example, why do national uh, NBA basketball stars make more money? You, you could make an argument that with globalization, you'd have more NBA players. But in fact, for many increasing returns reasons, a very small number of people become global stars rather than just US stars. Right. Um, by the way, Harvard has benefited from power laws because Harvard is now a global brand. And so you have many more foreign people who are applying to an excellent institution. And so the difference between Harvard and the other sort of increases. So over and over again, power laws dominate. I don't know if you have a course on power laws, but I would argue that power laws probably drive all of the economic flows between countries and most of the tr certainly most of the trade and an awful lot of the media. So trying to understand how you could capture one of those. Now, so if you follow that line of reasoning, I argue that there will eventually be four or five centers of power in the globe. Right. It won't be just the US. We can debate what they are. But as a good research project, you might try to figure out which they are and where the alignments are. And if you could predict that pretty accurately, that would give you a significant competitive advantage of trying to figure out how to influence the system. Okay. So that's the way a, sci a computer scientist thinks of this. Show me the network structure of how, how it works. Show me the interconnectedness and show me how I influence it, and then I can figure out how to do foreign policy. Well, Joe and I and others here on the faculty have, have in fact, you know, uh, studied power, soft power, hard power, you know, multipolar world versus uh, in, in, uh, in economic terms, you know, there may be multiple centers, and other terms there may be, you know, dozens of centers. Uh, and yet on military terms, there would be, uh, you know, one great power, a hyperpower in the United States. But what I think is less clear in this new world is, what does it mean to have this digital age in which so much power has been put in the hands of individuals? No, but remember, the power is put in individuals, but they also assemble power laws. Well, they do. So, so the point well, here is- It's, it's less at, predictable. No, but let's look, uh, but of course, but that's yeah. why it's so interesting. Yeah, so look at Twitter. <laughs> Twitter, you get somebody yeah. who's got five million followers right. who you've never heard of because right. you're my age, right. right? Who in fact has huge power, right? right? 
right? And then the, pol the political leadership have no idea how to use this person. Yeah. Well, what right. we do know is that it's easier to topple a government, it's easier to elect a government through this in this new universe than it is to govern yes. once it's done. You've seen this with President Obama. Yeah. Well, you in, were involved in, with that. You know. in, in our book we say revolutions are very easy to start and hard right. to finish. Exactly, exactly. But it's, I don't think we figured out, and one of the interesting questions for you would be, how, should the, how can the government take advantage of these, uh, these uh, new technologies uh, in a way to govern more effectively? Uh, well, start certainly by the Obamacare rollout shows yeah, us but, how it can be botched. Okay, but, but let's start by using things that were invented after the year 2000 in our software. Right. right. <laughs> let's but, only be 10 years late. Right, right. But how do you explain in your own mind, you know, since you're close to the Obama administration, what happened? I didn't do any of the programming, trust me. I, I can imagine. <laughs> do you have a view on what happened? Yeah, no, I've been in the meetings. I think, yeah. um, let's talk about the government in general and not, not in a political context. Okay. So the government is one of the largest IT providers, uh, IT customers, and it, pr it buys things from a large number of certified vendors who are government contractors. Almost everything from the way the government buys things is inimical whatever the word is, uh, to, to the way software is actually done. So the way you really build software is you get a team and you iterate. And you release once a week and you figure it out. You know, you try this, you try that. It's a dynamic system. Um, the, so the best software people are scientists and they're artists. They measure things, they move very fast, and it's a great, great job. None of that is possible in the, in the way the government buys things because you have to pre-specify everything, which is exactly the wrong way to do it. They're all fixed price contacts. And by the way, the programmers are no longer with you once you deploy the system. Um, a number of Google employees took leave from Google and went to work on the ACA. And uh, I've, again, heard the internal reports and, and as part of my White House role. And basically, the system as designed was, it was rushed. There was a fixed date. That's another rule about software. It had never been fully load tested, right? This is a failure, it's a classic IT management failure. Um, there's nothing new to say that. This has been said many, many times in the press. And it's perfectly possible that it will occur again in, if the government tries to do it, because it's using the wrong procurement process. So from the point of view of people going to places like the Kennedy School or going to Stanford and coming out and going into public service, uh, you would teach this as a case study about sort of trying to, uh, people have to not only be tech savvy, but understand the, how the, how the, what the dynamics of the tech world are. But I mean, we, we have a successful model, right. which is one of the great assets of America, right. and it's worth studying it right. for our government. Yeah. And um, I used to sit there and say, and people would say, what do you think of e-government? Well, I'm in favor of e-government. You know, I think we should put everything online and so yeah. forth. I'm much more um, sin uh, sanguine about it now. I'm much more, um, I'm sorry, less sanguine about it. I'm much more concerned that we, that's a here to there problem. That, we, that the systems are so complicated and that the way they're specified makes it very difficult to do these things. And this, to me, is a great opportunity for some leadership am among you all right, to go get these things fixed. You, it, it's so frustrating because the government could be so much more efficient. Now, there's cynics who would say the government's goal is not to be efficient, mm -hmm. it's to spend money. I'm going to take the position that the government serves the citizens, that efficiency is a good idea, the technology can really, really, really improve the quality of everyone's lives, hmm. right, um, as delivered by the government. Yeah, yeah. 
I was with the New York City Police Commissioner the other night, Bill Bratton, was earlier this week, and he made the argument that he's, he's using big data now extensively uh, on the crime front, but that they're developing algorithms that they believe are really pr quite predictive yeah. of where crime's gonna occur and they can actually prevent crime. So the, the, Bratton, the Bratton example goes something roughly like this. When you look at police calls, um, there are intersections where crimes happen all the time. So if you simply measure all that and you overcrowd those particular intersections, because you, you have limited number of police cars, mm -hmm. obviously you'd like to have as much police as possible, but you have limited resources, you overcrowd them, that's the number one thing that you would do to help, to help citizens avoid crime. Um, this is a no-brainer in business. This is what businesses do, right? You look at your biggest costs and you address them by putting your resources on them. What you're describing in general is called big data analytics. Let's mm -hmm. use a, a less controversial one um, from medicine. So when you go to the doctor, you're reliant upon the practice that the doctor is a member of or the hospital that they are and their own experience in what they learned in medical school and what they've read in recent journals. It would be much better if when you went to the doctor, the doctor took a, a digital picture of what your situation was, put it in a computer, and gave you a complete analysis of the global outcomes of this situation, right? So if you're this race, this sex, this age, with this problem, these are all the complications, this is, this is the complete map, because we're all the same genetically. And um, such a database does not exist. It's now possible to build this database, um, but the moment I say it in the other way, which is take all the medical healthcare records, put them in one big database, and do big data analysis, everyone goes bonkers, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the White House just released a report, yeah, I was ask you, um, I'd like to come to which came out at two. Um, I was one of the authors of the technical part, but not the policy part. I need mm -hmm. to disclaim that so I don't okay, get yelled okay. at. So just the technical aspects. But the policy report emphasizes the real benefits to society of taking this data and understanding outcomes. So for example, with medicine, it's known that a very small number of cases drive the majority of medical costs. Now, I don't know about you all, but it seems to me that since we spend 8% on GDP more than the Europeans for less or equal health outcomes, the cost is a concern. Correct. Right? So a business person would say, let's go to our highest cost things, let's work on ways right, to address the cost right, while respecting patient dignity, privacy, and all that kind of stuff. In order to do that, you need computerization of this kind. There, there are lots and lots of examples of big data's benefits, uh, uh, obviously big data be benefits in insurance, right? D distribution. Sure. By the way, what about education? Why don't we test the outcomes of the outcomes of education, right, and then back solve to see what worked and what we didn't? We can do that now. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna go to questions from the floor. There are microphones here, and if you wanna ask a question, start lining up now. I'm gonna ask one last question of you, Eric. Um, and, and it goes to privacy with this data and big data analytics. Uh, there are those who've come out today and said the president's report, there are many who supported it, but there are others, the critics, who are saying it doesn't go far enough to protect privacy. Uh, and it's too slow, but particularly the privacy point obviously is a very, very big issue. And are you, uh, where, how, how, do you how do we protect our privacy and yet allow us to realize the benefits? So, um, as I said, I've not read the, the formal, uh, because I was not part of it, I was not part of the legislative report. I, what I've read indicates that it's sort of middle of the road in this area. Sure. 
And so yep. if you're middle of the, the road, middle of the road, by, by definition, you'll have criticism on, right. on one side of the road. So, and my yeah. guess is that's what's going on. Yeah. The technical report, which I was involved with, is, uh, says some pretty strong things. It says that it's when you wander around the world, there's simply so much digital information. Again, this is the, the technical part of the report. That it's very difficult to escape what uh, the information about you. In other words, these models that somehow say you could opt in to, to privacy or not, there's simply so much around you that it's very difficult. And, and our team looked at questions like, could you do subsets or, you know, I want to be private, I don't want to be public, I'm an exhibitionist, I'm a privacy nut, you know, whatever, all, in, in all those spectrums. And we could not come up with any, with any way of doing that. And that, that, that we talk a lot in the technical report that, the, that part of the way to do this is if you're going to store all that data, make sure that you, you understand what you're going to use it for and make sure that you regulate the, the, um, the use of the data. Mm -hmm. The data itself is not dangerous, but its use could be quite dangerous. So what you want to do when you build one of these databases is you want to say these are the appropriate uses, that is the legal uses, and the other uses are not possible. And we talk mm -hmm. about how to do that. Do you have any views about the, this whole cases coming before the Supreme Court now? when the police arrest somebody and they, they want to go into their cell phone, whether they need a warrant to do that? Um, that, that is a legal question. I don't know enough about it to answer it. Um, in our book, what we say is that in the future, uh, certainly in dictatorships and in war zones, what will happen is you'll be shot, arrested, you know, by the opposition, and the first thing they're going to do is take your cell phone, and they're going to impersonate you, and they're going to immediately get everyone else to come to you because you're going to give a cry of help. So um, the fact that cell phones are ubiquitous and the fact that your, your tightest and closest relationships are all embedded on your phone is, is a very material thing. And we talk about that in the book at some point. Okay. Good. Okay. Listen, guys, we, I, I, we, we promised Eric that he'd be out by 645 sharp to get to his uh, next engagement. But we're going to go through as much as we can. One question per customer. Question mark at the end of the question. And I, it's so wonderful. Each, at every microphone, the first person up is a woman. That's wonderful. I've never seen that before <laughs> the, at Kennedy Schools. You're first. That's good. <clears throat> Please identify yourself. Were you at the college or in the Kennedy School, whatever. My name's Mariah. I'm a sophomore in the college. Does that mean you're an undergraduate? I'm an undergraduate. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, in our economy and society today, connection to the internet is obviously integral to so much. Um, however, in the United States, approximately 30% of Americans are still not connected in their homes to the internet. And this percentage is much larger for specific demographics. Would Google consider collaborating with cities or states across the country to finally bridge the digital divide and connect people who can't afford broadband connections? Well, we, thank you for your question. We were, in fact, in the process of doing that in the following way. Um, there are four cities that have what is called Google Fiber, which is a phenomenal product that's like the sexiest thing an engineer could ever have made, beyond belief, one gigabit, you know, changes your life, you'll never leave home. That's how, <laughs> that's how exciting this product is. You'll never come to school, it's just, you'll just sit there, right? Because it's, it's, it's 20 or 30 or 40 times faster than what you have today, probably significantly higher than here in the college. And as part of that program, when we do the installation, if you don't want to sign up, we will actually, if you are willing to pay for the, the physical connection, a one-time fee, we'll give you free internet. And so, in fact, we do that. 
Um, there, are there are a number of other variants of that kind of project, so the answer is yes, we, we are doing our part. Um, at some point, I, the, the good news, and I understand the basis of your question, is that our, our industry is a declining cost industry. So the prices are falling dramatically for everything, and usually that just solves itself. So I remember 20 years ago, you know, sort of discussing this at great length, and we were trying to get the schools wired. But in fact, the cost of access has become so low that the schools are wired now, right? And in, in fact, every household pretty much has a computer because they have the equivalent of a game console if they don't have a PC, and they all have smartphones now. The other story to mention is that the smartphone revolution, uh, today's smartphones are in the unsubsidized $400 to $500 price points. They're bought down by contracts. The next generation of smartphones will be $200, $100. In China, for example, you can get a very powerful smartphone, Android smartphone, for about $100, and those numbers are coming down dramatically. So you can look forward when you're in graduate school to a world where the vast majority of people you're dealing with in America have smartphones and reasonable connections. Please. Uh, please. Oh. Hi. Um, thank you for being with us today. My name is Carolina Portela, I'm a, and I'm a freshman at the college. My question um, relates to the convergence of politics and technology, specifically with the issue of censorship. Um, you were quoted by the Washington Post a few days ago as saying that we can end uh, government censorship in a decade by using encryption. In yeah. uh, encryption, um, can you describe the successes and setbacks that you have experienced, your company Google, in in China, and how you foresee your future with the nation? So. I genuinely believe that in a decade we can end repressive censorship using roughly the following mechanisms. Uh, Google has already announced roughly the following tool. You have a friend somewhere in America and you're in a repressed country, so pick North Korea, China, what have you. Pick any one of the, the usual bad suspects. And you basically, if you trust that person, they will give you a virtual private network connection, which they then maintain as though it's, so you're, they're essentially hosting you. And we can do that s with scale and with uh, alacrity, if you will. It works pretty well. So that's a very big step, and it's almost unblockable from the government's perspective uh, on, the, on the other side. And so that alone will make sure that the free flow of ideas continues. Um, in the China case, we've been negotiating with the Chinese government for years. Um, they're, shall we say, tough, tough to negotiate with. But they're not fundamentally in alignment with the goal of an open and free internet. Um, just recently, right before I went to China in November, the president uh, uh, authorized and they signed a law that criminalized any sort of mobilizing activity of, of any blogger that had more than 5,000 followers. Well, in China, everyone has 5,000 followers because there's so many Chinese people, right? It was just, it, just, it, it, effectively, it, it effectively criminalized anything bad. You have genuinely tough criteria. And, as long as it's going to operate that way, it's a real culture of fear. Please. Hi, Eric. My name is Claudine Newman-Martin. I'm a second year MPP at the Kennedy School. Um, my question's quite similar to the other two. Um, I was at recently in North Korea, and it was very oh. striking. What the I'm glad they let you out. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Are you American or foreign? I'm Australian, but I went with Americans. And oh, what Australia? They like Australians a lot more than Americans. They do, them. yeah, although we were still in the war, so <laughs> we're not that well loved. Um, my question um, is about your experiences in North Korea. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could share some of your reflections and maybe tell us a little bit about how you see the future of the country, not in terms of just technology that's possible, but how we get it in there. 
Well, since you've been there, you saw what I saw. Um, in many ways, it was more impressive than I thought because the city of Pyongyang is actually very pretty. The air is clean because, of course, there's no manufacturing at all. Uh, flowers. Uh, you had, you know, uh, Korean moms with their kids going to school, and you know, life people going to their jobs and and that, and it, it felt familiar. But the thing that was extraordinary to me was how strong the control structure on the humans was. Because the way they work uh, is they have these, these horrific gulags that if you violate something, um, not only do they put you in the gulag, but they put your extended family, your mother, your father, your children, and so forth. It's a very effective thought control. And I'll tell you my story. So the first day we're there, we're like terrified, right? So we're, we're, we're behaving. <laughs> and, um, and we have a translator as in police and the whole bit. We're having, and it's a very interesting meeting. The second day, we decide to be a little more risk-seeking. So the government's line is that um, the launch of these missiles, which they still maintain, is for peaceful communication satellites. That is their line, and they've been repeating this for a while. And so I decided to take a chance, and I looked at this senior minister of X, or some X, and said, well, Mr. Minister, I understand, and I certainly agree that peaceful telecommunication satellites make perfect sense, except that no one in our world would launch a telecommunication satellite today. We would just put fiber all throughout the mountains of North Korea. We call it the Republic of Korea. And now, if I said that to you, you would go no or yes, or you'd smile, right? You know, you'd have some acknowledgement that I had inserted a new fact <laughs> into the dialogue. You know, I'm either wrong or I'm right, okay? Stone-faced silence. <laughs> not even a motion of the head. Why? Everyone's watching him. They're not watching me. That's what freaked me out. Because, because I inserted a new fact that wasn't part of the thinking. Now, there may be some group that actually understood what I was talking about, but it was clearly not this group. Right. They had to have someone tell them what to think. Right. And, and, and the fact that you could do that for 22 million people was really quite depressing. So the problem, that problem is the real problem. All the other problems that you hear right, are severe and so forth. But until that problem gets fixed, it's a unique combination of religious leader, Korean culture, um, the fact that men are in charge and not women. There's just a set of failure modes, all of which converge on North Korea. I mean, the Italians wouldn't behave this way, right? <laughs> it just it wouldn't, it wouldn't work that way. Please. Mr. Schmidt, uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. My name is Valerie Vonnetan, and I'm a second-year MPP student here at the Kennedy School and a McCloy Scholar from Germany. Two weeks ago, um, the head of Germany's largest publisher wrote an open <laughs> letter to you stating that we are afraid of Google and that Google is operating a business model that, in quotes, is less reputable that in less reputable circles would be called extortion. The New York Times has been calling the exchange between you two a transatlantic um, war of words. In that sense, we are still waiting for you to return the fire. <laughs> and without uh, wanting you to, uh, without me putting you on the spot here, I Which would is what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> be really interested in hearing your response to Mr. Daphne's letter. So, so Matthias Daphne is actually a good personal friend, and um, I had written an article that was published in the competitor, 
which argued that uh, a broad and open internet was appropriate, that the transition was appropriate, et cetera, and this was his response. Uh, I think you can understand that this, of course, we, we have a business relationship with these guys, um, so put it in a little bit of a context. We're not gonna respond in public to this. Uh, I will be seeing Matthias shortly, and I'll talk to him about it some more. Um, let me say a couple things, uh, as a and not to comment specifically about his letter, because I don't want to do so. Uh, Google is free in Europe, and we provide enormous value to the citizens of Europe, and we monetize with ads, which we do well. Those ads are also available for um, newspaper partners and so forth. There's a specific set of issues around something called ancillary copyright and so forth, which is going through their, their legislative process, and that's what it's really about. But, but the core thing is, do you want Google in Germany? And the answer is yes. Is Germany important in the market for us? Absolutely, we want to serve the German citizens, and we think we're doing a really good job at it. Please, sir. Let's bring the microphone I, down, please. I'm from Ashcente uh, in Kennedy School. My name is Gang Wu. As you are coming here today, uh, White House released the big data and the privacy report. Uh, my question is, how should uh, Google take the lead both in the world area and at home by adopting the uh, policy that uh, stimulated the rules of the practical privacy protecting the technology that exists in the today? Thank yeah. you. Um, I, to the degree I understand your question, first place, Google is, is reviewing the report. So, from our perspective on the privacy side, you have the ability in Google to go in and tell Google what Google is to retain about you. There's something called the Google Dashboard. We think that's a pretty good answer. Much of the report is not really about Google-specific privacy issues at all. And one of the things that it does is it endorses something called uh, ECMA, report, uh, ECMA reform. ECMA is the um, Electronic Communications ECPA Privacy Act which needs to be updated for the digital age, and there's a bunch of legal things in there about that. Hi, uh, my name is Denise Lin. I'm a second year MVP student at the Kennedy School, and I was hoping you could speak more to Google Fiber. Um, uh, I'm interested in what the long-term goals of the project uh, are, whether it's to disrupt the market or really have Google become an internet service provider, and also, um, uh, what maybe the evolving goals are, considering the fact that Cox Communications and AT&T recently announced that they're interested in getting um, gigabit speeds out to different cities in the country. If the outcome of what we're doing is that every single one of you ends up with gigabit speeds from every cable provider, that is a huge win for you. And by the way, it's a win for Google. And it's a win for Google because our revenue goes up with faster connections. The more Google you use, the more revenue we get. <laughs> right? So we want you to get Google, you know, we don't want you to sleep, right? We want you to just using Google 24 hours a day. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. Please don't put it <laughs> in the context. Right, I get in trouble, right? So Eric says, don't sleep, use Google. Okay, please get eight hours of sleep and use Google 16 hours a day, <laughs> subject to medical advice. Anyway, um, but, but higher speeds are correlated with our business success, so it's in our business interest interest to, to do this as well. So when we started Google Fiber, the idea was to influence the outcome, to say it's technically possible, right, to showcase that the current speeds are well below 
that the architecture is the old architecture not the new. And in that sense, we're an innovator, not a disruptor. Um, and we'll see. Uh, it turns out that in the markets, shockingly, the markets that we are operating in, a number of our competitors have announced gigabit speeds. Competition works, and the consumer wins. So we think that's good. We don't have a, a good long-term answer to your question, but the current uh, rollouts are working extremely well, and we're very satisfied with them so far. So we'll see. So cities are competing now to bring in Google Fiber, right? Is that right? Yes, of course. Yeah. In fact, part of the model is that it's, it's much better to have the cities competing for Google Fiber than Google Fiber competing for the cities. Right, exactly. Because we need permission from the cities right. to do things like pull attachment right. and do a whole bunch of things like that. And cities have, over the years, developed rules that have various forms of barrier to entry, various cost problems that make it difficult to do this. So having the competition, right, with strong mayors who are committed to serving their citizens, they're willing to push through some of these internal roadblocks. Uh, and we're trying to think about how to grow that faster, but that's ultimately, ultimately why do you not have it here in Cambridge? Uh, because we, one, we haven't gotten here yet, but two, because there's always issues. You know, it takes, it takes a while, right? We were looking at this and you know, there's a shortage of people who can do the kind of fiber installation that we need in the country. We need to train more of them. I mean, it's just a big deal. Lots of homes, lots of people. Please, sir. Hi, my name is Kit Wu, and I'm a college student, first year. I'm also from San Leandro, so I'm right across the bay from Google, you know, the Good. area. Um, that being said, I'm curious to see what you think about the spread of innovation beyond Silicon Valley. Say, for example, within 20, 30 years, will we still see Silicon Valley holding that same concentration of innovator innovations and business as it does right now? Or? Well, I've been working to try to create other Silicon Valleys, and there's a lot of people who think it's very hard. So let me tell you why they think it's hard. For some reason, Silicon Valley, over 50 years, developed a set of practices which in some drive the innovation forward. Possible scenarios include the fact that the venture industry is highly concentrated there, that the venture industry owns minority positions, not majority positions, so the entrepreneurs are highly incentivized to win. Um, there are, for example, uh, effectively no uh, employment contract laws, that it's possible essentially for groups of people to leave one company to another, that the valley itself moves largely as a hive of knowledge. In other words, people flow back and forth and there's a tremendous amount of sharing. This is what I was trying mm -hmm. to talk about right. with cities. These all strike me as reproducible, right? I don't, I don't see any, any unusual physics in that, uh, but, it, but it takes, it, you have to do all of it. So uh, there's a, a, a person at Berkeley who did a study of why did 128 not succeed and everything moved to Silicon Valley, and she has a set of reasons, including these employment laws and other sort of government laws, which are from 15 years ago. So in looking at New York, um, as an example, uh, with respect to the Cornell thing, what are the things that New York doesn't have that Silicon Valley has, right? And we're trying to figure that out. If you talk to Fred Wilson, who's sort of the top venture capitalist in New York, he says the only thing we don't have is time, right? We're in the, uh, uh, quote, we're in the, the uh, first and a half generation of investing, and Silicon Valley is in the fourth or fifth. Mm -hmm. And that, that just that learning, right? The, the people, the knowledge, the judgment, right? Only in my world would WhatsApp be worth that. Right, you go to some banker type or a person in the business school and they go like, whatever, right? <laughs> but in my world, at least one company thought it was worth that. I'm not commenting on whether it was or not, I'm just saying <laughs> it, it, makes, it, it makes sense in the context of the way Silicon Valley works for scale that these conversations are occurring. Do you need a strong university as a part of that? 
you need a source of very, very smart people. One of the, one of the things you learn, uh, when I, as a young person, I was always struck by, why was it that Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison and Bill Gates never finished college? Mm -hmm. And the answer is they were too busy. But when you would talk to them, they were so much smarter than I was, right? So college is an approximation. It's a selection bias for intelligence. Mm -hmm. But what you really need is an unusual um, supply of smart people. Mm -hmm. I'll, give you, I'll give you an Israeli example because I've been studying this. And I'm not suggesting we have mandatory military pres pres prescription in America, so we're clear. They have it in Israel, and they, take, they test all the people, and they take the top 1% on the math test, and they put them in their signals intelligence group, roughly mm -hmm. the equivalent of our NSA, NSA, CIA kind of thing. Uh, all of those people eventually are disgorged out of the military, right? And they all know each other. So that's a different way, and not one wow. I'm endorsing, right, to produce those teams. So here in Cambridge, we have some of the smartest people in the world, right? Look at the, look at the sum of the universities and so forth. If I can be critical for a sec, why have you guys not produced the equivalent of Twitter, Facebook, Google, and so forth? I don't know. But the people are clearly just as smart, if not smarter. We hire lots of them. I know this to be a fact. So there's an action item for you. Please. Hi, thank you for uh, being here again. My name is Rajan. I'm a first year MPA student here at the Kennedy School. Um, and as you mentioned earlier and talked about, job creation is essential for economic growth. You talked about solving the job, jobs problem to solve other problems. Um, and a lot of my classes here at the Kennedy School, when we talk about creating jobs in terms of economic growth for countries like India and China, we look to the manufacturing sector, saying we have a large young population, we need to employ them in the manufacturing sector to create these jobs and lead to economic growth. And I was just cur curious about your thoughts on how the advent of 3D printing may actually shift the manufacturing sector itself from decentralizing from large plants to having people at homes or in more decentralized settings um, actually creating products. In the current state of 3D printing, it allows more flexible design styles, it's fantastic stuff, it makes the whole design process that much faster, but the majority of the goods that you purchase will be manufactured in traditional mechanisms because the cost of manufacturing is lower for things which are routine. The 3D printing is, by definition, more flexible because it can do anything. So as long as 3D printing has that specialization and therefore the cost associated with that, the majority of manufacturing will remain uh, traditional and the 3D printing revolution will completely change the way you think about design. Instead of having 50 people with spreadsheets and rulers and all of that, you'll sit there with your computer, you'll make this thing, you'll make it, you'll make it, and then you'll ship it to a volume manufacturer, and you're done. Right? So the product cycle is faster, but the mechanism is still manufacturing. Do you think in 100 or 200 or sometime in the future um, that actually the cost of 3D printing just being raw material supplies will actually um, become cheaper than economies of scale in mass manufacturing? The history is manufacturing flexibility through micro-automation and that kind of stuff. So you could certainly imagine that a steel mill that currently makes pl flat, you know, pr rolled press stuff in the old way could be automated and computerized to do 3D printing equivalent over a 100-year period, but certainly not in the next few years. Please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you for being here today. Uh, my question is about income inequality, which you talked about earlier. Um, we all know that that's a growing problem here in America and it's getting bigger. And usually a lot of time you hear people that are griping at CEOs and head of companies and making all these millions of dollars compared to their employees, normal employees in their companies. 
So my question is, uh, what do you, do you, number one, do you think it's fair for them to get blamed? Number two is, what do you think can be done to decrease and, uh, and flatten that in income inequality here in America? I don't mind the criticism at all. I think people who take those jobs expect to be criticized, and they're highly compensated to achieve that criticism. So please criticize away. And I think the, the criticism makes you smarter, stronger, and so forth. So bring it on. Um, the, I'm assuming that this generation of wealth that's being created will largely ultimately create a philanthropic boom. It is still the case that you cannot take it with you, right? That problem has not been solved. So it's reasonable as this generation of very wealthy people age, you'll see this huge amount of philanthropy. Uh, and I'm trying to participate myself in it. Um, and we'll see. And hopefully we'll have better tools, better ways of measurement. It won't be wasted. It'll be you know, done in a proper way. Um, the, the other question you had to do is, has to do with sort of the in inequality of compensation. And that goes back to our earlier point, that this is a long-term trend. It's very much not a good thing. Uh, and we need to come up with ways of fixing it. It's not obvious to me exactly how those are. They're going to be, you know, there's traditional ways of income re redistribution, philanthropy, and so forth, but there's not a consensus on how to do it. Thank you. Yeah, hi, thank you so much. My name is Nyong. I'm an MPIID student, one first year MPIID student from the Kennedy School. I have a question regarding, um, this, regarding the relevance of the modern day liberal arts education. Um, I have a degree, undergraduate degree in economics. When I went to San Francisco over spring break, I was told by my friends working at the startups that my skills are not entirely relevant. So I might- They clearly don't understand what modern economics is. Oh yeah, yeah, but like, I mean- Modern so economics is largely a math problem. But yeah, but, but e even with such a so-called quantitative like, background that I may have, I face resistance from these folks. And you know, I think <coughs> given, given, given that we are living in the, in the tech age, do you think that the kind of liberal arts education has become somewhat obsolete? So let's be clear. Yep. It's clear to me that Google would hire you, mm -hmm. so let's not worry about you. Um, <laughs> the, um, let's go through somebody with a strong quantitative economics background from a major university, an Ivy League university, whatever. This person will be highly valuable in any one of these companies. Why? Because they can count the revenue, right? <laughs> revenue, right, remember that? We actually have to have revenue, we have to count it, and so forth. Um, we hired a physicist, an economist named Alvarian, and he and a woman named Susan, uh, who's now running YouTube, eventually figured out that what we should do is understand the physics of our clicks, right? That in fact it was a physics problem and an economics problem. And I would never have told you that. I would have given you the old answer, which is, well, we're scientists, we're programmers, you know, we're having a good time. So I completely disagree with your friends on that. And I think the applicability of these kinds of, de of, of degrees in business development, business development, business analytics, uh, understanding the structure of these networks is profound. Couple more, please. My name is John Clark Levin. I'm a first year master in public policy student here at the Kennedy School. Thank you again for being here. One of the things you said that really struck me earlier was that revolutions are easy to start and hard to finish. And it's clear that Google and companies like it can play a key role in those revolutions or even smaller political decisions like what country owns Crimea on Google Maps now, questions like that. So. It seems that that political reach is much greater than Google had back in 2001. So I'm wondering, in your time at the company, how has Google's understanding of its own political role and responsibilities evolved? 
we've roughly learned the following rule. Every case is different. And when I started, and I had sort of the simple model of this. Oh, there's one answer, you know, force it on them, whatever. You know, typical arrogant kind of answer. And I think because of both the feedback, the political pressure, hiring some smart people, people from here, et cetera, we learned that these are more subtle. So for example, with the, you use the example of maps, we follow the UN conventions on mapping. And the UN conventions, shockingly, are not written by an engineer. The UN conventions allow for different names for things. <laughs> How the political world solved the problem was you can call it A and I'll call it B. And I can yell that you should be calling it B and you should call me, yell that I'm, but the provider can say you're A and we're B. And that's in fact how you solve those. So a little bit of depth um, makes sense. And we look at every one of these cases, whether it's the Innocence of Muslims video, um, some of the other censorship things. There's this horrific censorship thing going on right now in Turkey, which we're very upset about, which we're fighting, because uh, we obviously don't believe in censorship. But we, we do it on a case-by-case -case basis. Thank you. Last question. Hello, Mr. Schmidt. Uh, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm a sophomore in the college. Um, I just want to ask you regarding um, Facebook's recent move into the financial services uh, sector, really. Um, I want to ask you whether um, Google has those sorts of intentions as well in the future. Um, there were some very senior people in the fund management business uh, industry um, who, who mentioned they're extremely afraid of Google's entry into the asset management industry. Um, do you ever see Google entering that area? We, we never say never about anything. I'll tell you a story that when I first became CEO, I had an engineer who came in and said, I can predict markets. And I said, how? And he said, well, we have this AI algorithm. Um, and what we're going to do is look at what everything's happening. We'll just tell you what stocks are going to move. And I thought, this is great. You know, this is like we've invented something new. So I talked to the lawyer who said, well, you realize that what you're describing is completely illegal. And I said, it is? And he goes, yes. And so I learned from that lesson, ask the lawyers before you enter into markets which are heavily regulated for which you do not have a license. So the answer is I don't think, I, I, not in the short term, but we'll see. You never know. Maybe we could hear from, just quickly from each of them and, and I'll Fine. give a That's summary answer. Okay. I want to make sure we honor Quick. people. We'll go around, okay. we'll get the questions and they'll. I'll try to give a combined answer. Yeah. Great, uh, my name is Ben Bolger, I'm a Harvard alum. Uh, it's been 10 years since you launched Gmail. Just wondering if you could personally reflect on how your usage of email has changed anything unexpected that you've discovered in how you use email in the past 10 years. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi. My question is more about what is your thoughts about the new regulations for the net neutrality for the Federal Co Communication Commission? Okay, go ahead. Hi, I was, you've spoken a lot about commercial activity and job creations and things like that going into the new digital age, but I was wondering if you had any comments on uh, the place of nonprofit or philanthropic activity going forward. Uh, just real quickly, on Gmail, um, I'm always sur surprised at the strength of email. Gmail now has you know, close to a billion users. I don't know the number, but it's extraordinary, and by far the only one that's growing. Um, so we, and it's something about cloud computing that took off. The question about the FCC rules, we're generally concerned about um, restructuring the internet so it's a fee-for-service basis. We've benefited from having a one price fits all. The right answer is, is competition. Um, the third question was? The nonprofits, thank you. On the nonprofits, the, the thing I would tell you about nonprofits is that they're full of extremely well-meaning people who need to build things. Um, and the way to really have leverage is to build a platform that can measure and deliver services online. 
Um, there are people who are beginning to build these platforms, and then others who don't have the technical skills can use them. There's so much waste in the philanthropic world because they don't measure the outcome. They're, again, they're well-meaning people. They're trying to solve the problem. You ask them the basic questions. How many of this did you save? How much of this? And they can't answer them. That's indication of poor management. They need better tools. Let's do a couple more real quick. Okay. Hi. Um, there's a saying that um, Google is essentially an advertisement company. I'm just curious, how do you respond to it? Go ahead. Yes, sir. Um, do you think the forgettable internet uh, is sort of a fad, or do you think there's something sort of fundamental there where people don't want every little thing they post online to follow them forever? So um, the question about advertising, Google is a product company. Many people have said we're a marketing company or a media company. We're a product company. We're full of innovators. Sometimes our products are great. Sometimes they're not so great. Hopefully we, hopefully we, we figure out a way to systematize innovation. So over the next decade, hopefully you'll see sort of amazing, amazing in, you know, innovation, right? And your question was about? Um, basically the idea of a more forgettable internet. That's right. I already forgot your question. The, uh, sorry. Um, the, the report, without giving a Google answer, because I don't want to, the report that we published today says that it's very difficult to do what you just described. Uh, and it goes something like this. The, when you publish something, there are so many copies that are just naturally occurring that the concept of somehow getting it all deleted would be very, very difficult. Um, in, in general, this um, sort of data permanence problem is a feature or a cost or a benefit of the modern age, which is why, for example, bulk leaking, sort of the Snowden example, uh, is such a serious matter because once these things are leaked, even if unintentionally, in this case, I guess it was intentional, you can't take it back. And that has a lot of very profound implications on public policy, how people behave, and so forth. But there's no evidence that we can come up with a technology today that can do what you're describing, and that's what our report says. And then uh, th we have three people here. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm an MPS student here at Kennedy School. Uh, I was doing my doctorate at Columbia in education. My questions relate to the Google application in education. Do you have any strategic plan for the technical applications specifically for the education? Yeah. And, and also, I heard like uh, the Google Class has been a while, but uh, when, do you have any agenda for the Google Class can be released? So a question about public? education and Google Glass. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Hello. Am I the last one? No, we have one gentleman oh, behind okay. you. Okay. I thought it would end with a woman. Well, you'll, he can go first and <laughs> okay, you can go last. Go okay, good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Patrick. I'm a fellow at Harvard. Uh, quick question um, Can you tell us one habit or trait that you keep that makes you effective as a leader? Okay, so uh, let's see. So your questions were glass and education, education. Uh, and then habits. So glass is doing well, and we're working on uh, programming partners whose jobs are to build industries and software to, to run on the glass. Most of the, um, most of the success, in my view, on glass will be in industrial, medical, you know, things where that, that additional assistance actually makes people's lives safer, better, and so forth. We'll see what the consumer products look like. It's too early to tell. We're in that platform building stage. Um, on education, we built something called Course Builder, which has done very well. It's now part of the MIT edX platform, uh, and that's how we've done it. We believe that the online education is going to be a huge source of education around the world. So I found there is 
very good application for Google Glass can be used in the like uh, tele learning, like distance learning part. I mean, that's could we'll be see. We'll see. We're waiting for those applications. Yeah. And and I think your question was mostly the about fellow's question about was yeah, about just what habits. Um, I think anything I say would be embarrassing. So uh, <laughs> let me give you, let me structure it as advi advice rather than my own traits. Um, I think it's important that you recognize that you're not actually doing the work that other people are, that your job is to understand what they're doing, to get the strategy right, and empower them. Most of the problems that companies get into, and I think it's true in, in society in general, is a failure of the strategy. Most people, if the strategy is right, they can figure out a way to implement it. But the strategy is wrong because there's some fact that's being ignored. There's some elephant in the room that they're not doing it. So the job of a leader is to sort of call that and say, what are we going to do about this? And keep people's nose to fixing it. That's why I kept saying, just fix the joblessness problem, and everything else in the country sort of works itself out. Now, I know it's more complicated than that, but you see, that's an example of that kind of behavior. Um, and I think a certain amount of, at a certain sense of humor and a certain tolerance for risk and a certain tolerance for failure. The world is complicated, but with smart people, I always said to Google that I, the, the thing I love about Google is I have no idea what we're going to do, but I have the smartest people to travel with me to deal with the challenges. And that's true at every stage of growth, right? And because the, the future is sort of gray, you're never quite sure, you want to make sure that those are the people. So it's ultimately about people, leadership, and hiring in that regard. And ma'am, you have the honor of the last question. Good, good, it ends with a woman, right? <laughs> Uh, thank you for being here, Eric. Um, I'm a student at Harvard Divinity School. Okay. So I promise I'm going to let you off the hook because I'm not going to question you about God. <laughs> but obviously, you are a tech world genius. What I would like you to share with us today is what's one thing you know about the tech world's future that we collectively do not know? The, 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 sorry, the, te the tech world's future? I think um, I, my guess is that collectively you'll make the mistake that I always do, which is that you won't do the compounding right. That humans are very good at linear extrapolation and very bad at compounding. And the, the rate of change, some of you in the audience are old enough to remember when cell phones didn't exist. Right? How did we get along without cell phones? and how fundamental they have become in our, in, our, in our daily lives. I can go on and on and on. And I think that the, the commentators and the critics of our industry always miss that, that it's combinatoric, it's, it's, it's very fast, and it compounds very quickly. And it leads to both jarring problems, but also huge opportunities. Jarring problems like drones, right? Huge opportunities like huge knowledge bases of information that can revolutionize healthcare treatment of people, maybe even answering questions that are existential, like the question of God. So thank you, David, for doing this. This I, is such, I, when I was here the first time, I had the same reaction. Best audience ever. Isn't it terrific? <laughs> I can tell you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson would have been absolutely delighted by this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank okay. You. <clears throat>